Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayette. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Thirteen, Part Two. Dr. Francis was a florid old gentleman, good-natured, tolerant, mystical, and, but for the extent to which his functions had wrapped him in bandages, might have been progressive. He was the brother of Mrs. Lydia Maria Child, whose progress of religious ideas was perhaps the earliest attempt to gather together the spiritual expressions of all the races of mankind. We all liked Dr. Francis personally, and derived benefit from his encyclopedic information about the Church and the Fathers, though he was not able to kindle this ancient coal with any present fire, so that we might receive light and warmth from it. Theodore Parker once said that he asked a friend from Cambridge what was going on at the Divinity School, and the reply was, One professor is milking the barren heifer, and the other is holding the sieve but in 1853 and 54 the case was by no means that. Professor George R. Noyes went through the Bible with a well-trained critical instinct and delivered us from the fallacious method of interpreting scriptures to suit our preconceptions, either pious or rationalistic. His admirable translation of the book of Job shows his mental veracity. My old student's Bible is marked with notes of his instructions, and in later years, when knowledge is so much advanced beyond what it then was, I often find in them useful suggestions. The fear of giving a push to rationalism on the one hand, or to orthodoxy on the other, never made Dr. Noyes swerve from exact truth. It was a great training to have with us this constant exemplification of conscientious scholarship and a love of truth too generally sacrificed to what Kant calls THE truth. One morning I entered the lecture-room a few moments late, and Dr. Noyes remarked with a friendly smile, It is said of a famous Virginian that he was remarkable for punctuality. As George Washington had never before been held up to me as an example in anything, it required a minute for me to comprehend the illusion. The professor had a good deal of humor. He usually confined his wit to anecdotes, but once he repeated to us a conundrum recalled from early years. What is the difference between Noah's Ark and a down-east coaster? One was made of gopher wood, the other to gopher wood. Dr. Noyes, while so relentless in his higher criticism, was conservative in temperament. There was a legend that once his patience with a pro-slavery administration broke down, and that in his chapel prayer he said, May our rulers be endowed with that wisdom which they so much need. But in his class, when dealing with some text relating to slavery, he reminded us of the fable of the competition between the wind and the sun to make the traveler take off his coat. 
He did not believe that any evil institution could be removed by violent denunciation, but he thought that any subject might be dealt with in the pulpit if it was not in a pugnacious spirit. He also regarded the prohibitionists as unwise, and trusted that we would, as public teachers, not only be temperate in eating and drinking, but also in our zeal for any reform. The school was in a fairly flourishing condition. It had in some years had very few students, and it was said that some old minister reported finding there only three seniors, adding, one is a mystic, one a skeptic, and the other a dyspeptic. But we had quite a number, and most of them youths of ability, also hard workers and full of earnestness. We held weekly discussions in our chapel, from which our professors were careful to be absent. The subjects were generally ethical, one of the most excited debates being on the proposed abstention of anti-slavery people from the products of slave labor. One maintained that we should use cotton and sugar to increase our health and strength for the combat against slavery. I gained from that debate the basis of a subsequent reply to an English society's suggestion of such abstention. I affirmed that a mere economic victory over slavery would be akin to a military victory, and do no good to the slave. Only a change of mind and heart in the owners would free the slaves. With the exception of Father Taylor, the Orthodox pulpit had few men of much ability in Boston at that time. Phillips Brooks was as yet a Harvard undergraduate. In the absence of any adequate championship of orthodoxy, it fell to certain Unitarians to maintain scriptural authority and supernaturalism, and some of them were strong men. The typical old-fashioned Unitarian was Dr. Ezra Stiles Gannett, whose fire and vigorous thought made him eloquent. He lived long enough to be the last of the able and learned believers inspired by Unitarian Christianity. The leading reactionnaire was Dr. now Bishop Huntington, a handsome gentleman and accomplished preacher, but unable to deal with the positions of Parker and other Unitarian heretics. This inability did not arise from any lack of intellect or learning, but from being out of his place. These leaders in the defense of supernatural Christianity had their school, which was vigilant over us of the divinity school. My own enthusiasm for Emerson unexpectedly gave rise to an incident that caused excitement in the right wing. It was Emerson's custom to give one of the winter courses of lectures in Concord, and, having ascertained the date, I persuaded two students to join me in hiring a sleigh to take us out to Concord, twenty miles, and bring us back to Cambridge the same evening. One of the party was Henry Gardner Denny, a law student. Loamy Goodenough Ware and myself were the only divinity students who went, and the former, afterwards minister in Augusta, Maine, with all his sweet tolerance, was rather a right-wing Unitarian. The snow was deep and hard enough for perfect slaying, the thermometer below zero, but our hearts were warm enough to make us forget the weather, until on reaching Concord Town Hall we found it closed. We drove to Emerson's house and learned that his lecture had been indefinitely postponed. 
Emerson was surprised and touched that young men should, in such weather, make a journey of forty miles, with the necessity of rising betimes next day to listen to one of his lectures. He and his wife detained us with utmost hospitality, gave us refreshments, and after listening to his conversation we went off with a sense of happiest disappointment. No public lecture could have equaled that evening with Emerson. But with his characteristic humility, Emerson was unconscious of the riches his conversation had bestowed, and thought only of our disappointment at hearing no lecture after our ride on the snow. Consequently he wrote to me that if I could arrange an afternoon, he would read a lecture in my room. The arrangement was made, and the lecture read. Of this incident I shall presently give further account, but first I must relate that the incident speedily reached the Unitarians in Boston, accumulating on its way all manner of mythical additions, until when it came to the Gannett and Huntington circle it amounted to a dire and pregnant affair. Dr. Francis and Dr. Noyes called to ask me about it, and I gathered from them and others that it was reported that Emerson had now become a regular teacher in Divinity Hall, the students having organized a school within the school for the Emersonian cult. Emerson's paper was on poetry. It was read to us on a Saturday afternoon, when no regular teaching was going on, and only two of the students were divinity students. Our professors were perfectly satisfied by my narrative of the circumstances, but Dr. Huntington, with whom I also conversed, was convinced that the school was steeped in unbelief, resulting from a general decline of moral earnestness. This is the one phrase I recall from the only conversation I ever had with him, a brief conversation which, for the rest, certainly left on me an impression of his own moral earnestness, insomuch that I was not surprised to hear that he had abandoned Unitarianism at heavy cost to his personal associations. When Emerson wrote me that he would read a lecture in my room, I concluded that it was an occasion of which I ought to make the most. My own room was too plainly furnished, and I proposed to my dear friend Loamy Ware that the company should assemble in his room, the most elegant in Divinity Hall. There were present Mr. and Mrs. Longfellow, Arthur Hugh Clough, J. R. Lowell, Mrs. Charles Lowell, J. S. Dwight, Charles E. Norton and his sisters Jane and Grace, Frank B. Sanborn, L. G. Ware, Henry G. Denny, and the musical artist Otto Dressel. The impression on us was profound. It was a sort of epic that we should be gathered around this poet who fulfilled before us one of the sentences he uttered, In poetry we require the miracle. When Emerson finished there was a deep silence. Presently Otto Dresel moved to the piano and performed several of Mendelssohn's songs without words. Those were the only words possible. Footnote. In this paper, Emerson said, the electric word pronounced by John Hunter a hundred years ago, arrested and progressive development, indicating the way upward from the invisible protoplasm to the highest organism, gave the poetic key to natural science, of which the theories of Geoffrey St. Hilaire, of Oaken, of Goethe, of Agassiz, 
and Owen and Darwin in zoology and botany, are the fruits, a hint whose power is not exhausted, showing unity and perfect order in physics. After Emerson's death, I gave at the Royal Institution, London, a lecture on Emerson and his views of nature, February 9, 1883. While preparing that lecture, I inquired of Professors Huxley, Tyndall, and Flower, then Hunterian lecturer, where I could find John Hunter's statement about arrested and progressive development. Neither of these could find the reference, and indeed they were much startled when I showed them the extract that Emerson should have discovered such an anticipation of natural selection. They were also unaware that Emerson himself should, in that passage, have so nearly approached the great generalization published by Darwin five years later. The Darwin alluded to in the extract was Erasmus. I then explored Palmer's edition of Hunter's Works, 1835, and found in volume one, page 265, this footnote. If we were capable of following the progress of increase of number of the parts and the most perfect animal, as they formed in succession, from the very first to its state of full perfection, we should probably be able to compare it to some of the incomplete animals themselves of every order of animals in creation, being at no stage different from some of those inferior orders. Or, in other words, if we were to take a series of animals, from the more imperfect to the perfect, we should probably find an imperfect animal corresponding with some stage of the most perfect. It was this note which Emerson coined into a phrase of his own, arrested and progressive development. End of footnote. Such was the memorable episode that became fabled among our anxious Boston elders and excited such perturbation. Whether Dr. Huntington's words about the decline of moral earnestness referred particularly to our school or to the Unitarian body, I do not know. In either case, he was mistaken. He could not have attended one of our weekly discussions in the chapel without perceiving that our moral earnestness was almost too intense. War, non-resistance, the methods of dealing with criminals, slavery, the rights and wrongs of woman, all questions relating to human life and society were earnestly discussed and excited more interest than debates on theological problems. And in all this the Divinity School indicated the advance in the Unitarian churches of a new moral life which could not be prevented from floating the ethical systems molded in puritanical theology. At the time of which I write there existed in and around Boston a Unitarian clergy never surpassed for the eloquence adapted to cultured minds. There were ministers who were without much renown simply because of their number, who, had they been preaching in distant regions, would have been famous. A few were at once popular orators and thinkers that attracted the thinkers, notably Thomas Starr King, James Freeman Clark, Dr. Ephraim Peabody, Boston, Dr. George Putman, Roxbury, T. Wentworth Higginson, Worcester, John Weiss, New Bedford, Samuel Johnson, Lynn, Octavius B. Frothingham, Salem, and Dr. Ezra Stiles Gannett. But if one entered the church of George Ellis in Charleston, 
or of his brother Rufus in Boston, or that of Bartle, Lothrop, or Hall, Dorchester, Sears, Newell, Young, Lincoln, Samuel May, he would hear a well-digested statement on some important matter, and always that of a conscientious and cultured mind. We also sometimes heard in Boston or Cambridge the scholarly discourse of Dr. Frederick Hedge, Providence, the poetic thought of Charles T. Brooks, Newport, and William Silsby, Northampton. Then there was always with us our eloquent President Walker, who usually preached in the university chapel, where also we occasionally heard impressive discourses from Dr. Andrew Peabody and Dr. Thomas Hill, afterward president of Harvard University. These were all really creators of the atmosphere of culture and sincerity which developed the movement of their heresiarch, Theodore Parker. Up to the middle of the century, these fine spirits had felt touched to sufficiently fine issues in guarding their flocks against wolves of ancient superstition, cruel dogmas, and in encouraging domestic virtues and individual culture. And their success was that in their churches were born competent leaders of men, able lawyers, judges, authors. But they failed to heed the warning voice of their great leader gone silent, Channing, that slavery was an intolerable wrong which would imperil the nation. Channing pleaded that the slaves should be liberated and the slaveholders compensated. As Franz von Beder said, repelled light returns in lightning. In our senior year, we were nearly every Sunday preaching in some pulpit needing supply, and as in such places we were entertained by prominent Unitarian families, we acquired knowledge of the trend of things. I often filled the pulpits at Plymouth, Fall River, New Bedford, Newburyport, Marblehead, also sometimes in Boston and its suburbs, and gained very distinct ideas on the characteristics of Unitarianism in its great days. As a rationalist I advocated changes, and as a freethinker I still recognized that there was something offensive in the attention learned men were giving to ancient and remote times and places, and to metaphysics, when their own time and country were in sore need of every available fiber of strength. But long experience and historical studies have shown me another side of the situation. The Unitarians had inherited the old churches, and the hard literature and tyranny of those old Calvinists were done away with in the only genuine way, by evolution instead of revolution. The only security against reversion in human evolution is that some continuity shall be preserved with all that was humane in preceding forms or capable of a human interpretation. From time to time a question might be asked, and it was then time to answer it, to animate homes and towns with sweetness and light, to see after the charities, to encourage reading, culture, attention to health, elegance in social life, art, good taste, pretty amusements, these made a sufficient task for every minister without his paying much attention to polemics. It was a fault, I think, in our teaching at Cambridge 
that it was not proved to us and continually impressed on us that a man might be both scholarly and self-truthful, even though, like our dear old Professor Francis, he repudiated each particular miracle while maintaining supernaturalism. If a preacher made a bold statement in one direction, we were apt to regard his conformity in others as hypocrisy. Yet we presently went out to our pastoral charges, and, with whatever radicalism followed usages whose inconsistency with our principles was discovered only in later years. How long did I administer the sacrament after I had rejected every theory of atonement? We would have been wiser if we had realized then, as we did later, that there was an Emerson in every leading preacher's breast. Frank Sanborn told me that Emerson and Henry Ward Beecher happened to meet at some hotel and were dining together. Mr. Emerson, said Beecher, do you think a man eating these meats could tell what grasses the animals fed on? No, said Emerson. I'm glad to hear it, said Beecher, for I've been feeding on you a long time, and I'm glad my people don't know it. A disposition for hard work was characteristic of all our Conway race. Even in the cold northern climate, I must rise early, and in that way I managed to read many excellent books. My habit of pastoral work on my Methodist circuit caused me to welcome an invitation from Charles Norton to unite in a night school which he had started at Cambridgeport, where many poor resided. It profoundly moved me to see a room crowded with grown-up people learning the rudiments of knowledge like children. This was what I had longed for among the poor whites of Virginia, but I had at last reached agreement with Horace Greeley's comment on my effort. The poor whites of Virginia could never be educated until the slaves were free. After all, the conservative ministers were not quite wrong in their apprehension that Emerson had become a teacher at the Divinity School. Only it would have been more exact to say, in the whole college. Charles Norton, Sanborn, Eliot, Horace Furness, to name those of whom I knew something, were really children of Emerson, perhaps more truly than some of us who found him an especially religious inspirer. In later years I have met with men who listened to Emerson with enthusiasm, and found that, like myself, they had not lost the old faith and the hopes for mankind which animated us in those years. But love of Emerson never perished in any heart that knew him. The feelings toward him had really little to do with visions and ideals raised in us, but was something not to be analyzed or described. For myself, I may say that even his playful remarks planted some seed in my mind. What, Sonny? Your mother says you are not well today. Now what naughty thing have you been doing? For when anyone is sick, something the devil is the matter. Out of that merry and caressing bit of humor grew in my ministry the sermons on health, which I condensed into an article in my dial on The Moral Diagnosis of Disease. During my whole ministry I tried to live up to the art of negation illustrated in Emerson's reply to a lady when I was present. Was not Christ sinless? asked the pious lady. Emerson said, The knowledge of good and evil through experience 
is an essential condition of intelligence, and that wisdom can hardly be denied to Jesus. The broken seed-shell of dogma could not be mourned when out of it sprang a fragrant flower. Of course, we who went out as public teachers had not always before us the taught and sympathetic listeners that surrounded Emerson. I have had to defend my beliefs and disbeliefs in controversies, but after every one of them I have felt the truth which Emerson wrote in a letter, 1838, shown me by a lady in Cincinnati. I do not gladly utter any deep conviction of the soul in any company where I think it will be contested. No, nor unless I think it will be welcome. Truth has already ceased to be itself, if polemically said. On one occasion Mrs. Emerson was speaking of the need she felt of belief in something supernatural. Emerson said gently, Isn't it enough, Queenie, to look into the eyes of your child? One thing Emerson said to me when about to enter on my new ministry I did not forget. Ai arisgeyen. However little my best may be, I have found that the deepest satisfaction of heart and mind is not in the achievement, not in the event, but in doing one's very best. End of chapter 13